Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 35. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to review philosophical and psychological topics that support the notion that we have a free mind that is capable and responsible for purposeful action in our lives. Please follow The Cunning of Geist Facebook page, at Cunning of Geist, and on Twitter, also at Cunning of Geist. In this current episode, we are going to discuss an important issue. As you know, the name of this podcast is The Cunning of Geist. And Geist is a German word which means spirit or mind. And while most believe that we do in fact have some degree of rationality, there's much less agreement about the spirit part. Now, spirit, as you know, is a key part of Hegel's philosophy. His first book was entitled The Phenomenology of Spirit. And in his later work, spirit represents the third stage of his system, the first being abstract logic, the second being nature, and spirit is the third part, which is the dialectical development of mind within nature, coming to know itself through its efforts. It is constantly improving and evolving through, as I said, this dialectical process through history. So that's Hegel's system, and spirit's a big part of it. But why should we believe it? particularly in today's society, which is basically rampant materialism and naturalism. Any talk of spirit today can sound new agey and fuzzy, fuzzy thinking. So what are we doing here as as, uh, people that are interested in Hegel? Are, Are we really warranted in believing in spirit? Well, that's the subject of this episode. And to do this, I'm going to be focusing on the work of contemporary American philosopher Alvin Plantinga and the relation that his work has to Hegel's philosophy. Plantinga is best known for his book, Warranted Christian Belief, but he has written on a wide variety of topics. Now, I will be using Plantinga's arguments here in regard to Hegel's notion of spirit. But before we begin, it's important to point out that Plantinga's project centers on belief in God. It centers on theism and in particular Christian belief. Now, the key here is that his review of um, warranted belief of th- in theism and Christianity can be directly applied to Hegel's notion of spirit. And as such, it, it can be tied to spirit as much as it can be to theism and Christianity, as you will see, hopefully. And we'll be covering that in this episode. But before we get into that, let me give you some background on Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga was born in 1932. He attended Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the United States. And while he was attending Calvin University, he was able to obtain a scholarship to transfer to Harvard. And he actually stayed at Harvard for two years. And then on a recess, he attended a philosophy lecture back at Calvin University. And he was so impressed by the lecturer, a professor, William Harry Jalema, that he decided he would return to finish his undergraduate studies there at Calvin University. So Plantinga was really taken by Jalema. And he says, I quote, by all odds, the most gifted teacher of philosophy I have ever encountered. That's what Plantinga had to say about Jalema. Plantinga graduated from uh, Calvin University and began his graduate studies at the University of Michigan, but he transferred to Yale, where he received his PhD in 1957. 
He then began teaching philosophy at Wayne State University in 1958, which was known at the time as a center for analytic philosophy. He then transferred to his alma mater, Calvin University, where he actually replaced the retiring Jalema. He spent 19 years there at Calvin University before moving to Notre Dame University in 1982. He spent nearly 30 years at Notre Dame and retired there in uh, 2010. Now, on to his concept of warranted belief. First, an overview. Plantinga develops his argument in a rather unique way. He separates two different arguments regarding the existence of God. First is the argument whether or not God exists, just as a matter of fact. And people have varying degrees of of difference in terms of how they look at this. Even the famed atheist Richard Dawkins says he cannot be entirely sure there is no God. So that's one issue. The second issue is a different question. It's not whether or not there's a God or not. It's whether it is rational or irrational to believe in such a God, even if you're not 100% sure. And here is where Plantinga lays his claim. And he shows that belief in God is indeed warranted, even without proof, as is belief in the Christian faith. Now, as I said before, What's important here is the same thinking can be applied to Hegel's notion of spirit using Plantinga's arguments. One can clearly show that belief in spirit is certainly warranted. It is not illogical or wrong by any stretch of the imagination. Interestingly, by way of background, this issue of warrant first came front and center to Plantinga when he was an undergrad at Harvard. He was raised a Christian, uh, and when he went to Harvard, though, he was exposed to just total atheism in a very strong way, and it gave him pause. And it wasn't just his friends, it was his teachers as well. And he had a very strong visceral reaction to this, which is just what is wrong with my belief? He summarizes this um, very well, and I'm going to quote him. My attitude gradually became one of a mixture of doubt and bravado. On the one hand, I began to think it questionable that what I have been taught and had always been always believed could be right, given that there were all these others who thought so differently and who were so much more intellectually accomplished than I. On the other hand, I thought to myself, what really is so great about these people? Why should I believe them? What precisely is the substance of their objections to Christianity or to theism? Do these objections really have much by way of substance? And if, as I strongly suspected, not Why should their taking the views they did be relevant to what I thought? The doubts, in that form anyway, didn't last long. But something like the bravado, I suppose, has remained. End quote. Now, I think Plantinga took up this fight while he was at Harvard, and he's he's continued it every day of his his career. It should be mentioned that the philosophical environment in the 1950s was very different than it it is today. Um, it wasn't only that they were not believing in God, but Hegel, for all intents and purposes, was dismissed as a crackpot back then in the 1950s in philosophical circles. You know, if you speak to anyone who majored in philosophy, say in the 1960s even, but hasn't read much on the subject since, and you mention Hegel and they look at you like, oh, well, he's been you know soundly disproven. Nobody takes him seriously anymore. 
this is due to the fact that the pervading philosophy back in the 1950s was that of logical positivism. We've talked about this before. And this is certainly a, a, a strain of analytic philosophy in general. Logical positivism held sway well into the 1960s. And then it began to be dismantled by such philosophers as Quine, Popper, and Thomas Kuhn. Uh, we discussed Kuhn's work extensively, the, his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, several episodes, particularly in episode 12 uh, on panpsychism and naturalistic materialism. Let me read a relevant quote from an article entitled An Introduction to the Thought of Alvin Plantinga that addresses this. Quote, Philosophy in the previous generation was dominated almost exclusively by atheists or agnostics. This was, at least in large part, due to the influence of positivism on the philosophical terrain. Plantinga himself notes, quote, When I left graduate school in 1957, there were few Christian philosophers in the United States and even fewer Christian philosophers willing to identify themselves as such. Why was this the case? Primarily because positivism, with its verifiability criterion of meaning had hegemonic influence. And as most who would look back on that period note, Christians were by and large either jumping on the positivistic bandwagon or running scared of positivism's conclusions. Plantinga was undaunted by such criticisms, end quote. Moving along here, philosophy was certainly bound by a straitjacket back then. There was no God, certainly no Christianity, and certainly no Hegel. Now, this was before the Hegel Renaissance began, and the seeds of the Hegel Renaissance began, I'd say, with an interest in Marxism that uh, was around in the 1960s, as well as the publication of Charles Taylor's book, Hegel, which was published in 65. But it, it really picked up with the publication of a book entitled The Cambridge Companion to Hegel, which was published in 1993 and had essays um, by many leading Hegel scholars. Okay, that's that's enough background on Plantinga. Let's get into his notion of warranted belief. As I said, although he discusses this very clearly in relation to God, theism, and Christianity, the same process can be used considering Hegel's notion of spirit or geist. So just what is warranted belief? Well, the first part is basically an assumption that certain beliefs that we hold are not necessarily in need of hard evidence to believe in them, to be warranted to believe in them. For example, we believe other people have minds, although we can't prove this. This is a warranted belief. It is not irrational to believe that other people have minds. Plantinga made this argument first in his book, God and Other Minds, in 1967. Um, you know, although I can't prove it, it's not irrational for me to think that the color red that I see is the same color red that you're seeing. It's not that you're seeing green and calling it red. And we just happen to both believe it's the same color. There's another case, similar case regarding time. We assume the reality of the past. Uh, we are warranted to believe that there's a past, although we can't prove it. The past is no longer here. We cannot prove that the world was not created five minutes ago with the appearance of age. But we are certainly warranted in believing that the past surely existed. So um, this is the first cut at what it means to be, to be warranted. Now, I'm going to go through his specific steps here. The book Warranted Christian Belief is over 500 pages. Some considered his magnum opus. I, I cannot do it justice here. It's, 
It's a very long uh, philosophical book, but uh, let me just briefly cover the, the basics here. And to be a warranted belief, Plantinga believes it must adhere to four, four criteria. First is that your cognitive abilities must be functioning properly to have a warranted belief. Uh, this just means that we're not guilty of distorted thinking or damaged thinking somehow. Secondly, that your environment is sufficiently similar to what your cognitive faculties are designed for. It just means you're not a fish out of water. In, in other words, you're in a world and an environment that your mind has been developed uh, to deal with. Third, and this is a big one, that your cognitive abilities are designed to represent the truth. And what does this mean? Obviously means, well, it depends on what you mean by truth. It depends on what you mean by design. And let me point out here, Plantinga is not evoking intelligent design, ID here. He's just saying that our cognitive abilities developed to give us an accurate assessment as possible to reality. That's what this third point is, that one believes this. And it, back again to intelligent design, just to quote Plantinga himself, quote, it is perhaps possible that evolution, undirected by God or anyone else, has somehow furnished us with our design plans. So naturalism may have, in fact, produced a reliable design plan. It is a possibility. Or maybe it was spirit. Or maybe it was a combination of both. We'll get into this. Fourth and lastly, uh, you must have high confidence in your rationally determined beliefs. You don't believe that your mind comes from an evil demon or your mind is a brain in a vat or the product of some computer program, a la the matrix that was created to give you false beliefs. You have trust in your own cognitive abilities. So that's, that's it. In a nutshell, one, a belief is warranted if your mind is functioning properly. Two, if you are in an environment that allows its proper functioning. Three, that your mind was designed to evolve to function accurately. And fourth, that you have a high degree of confidence that your mind is producing true beliefs. Now, let's put this in Hegelian terms. Going back to the original argument of Plantinga, uh, so the question is not whether or not there actually is something like spirit, as Hegel describes. It's not a question of proving or disproving spirit is real scientifically or empirically. The question is whether someone is warranted in believing in spirit or geist. If someone says you're crazy for believing in anything like Hegel's geist, you can counter, well, I cannot prove to you empirically that Geist exists, but I can say that I'm warranted in believing in Geist. This is because, one, I believe I have a properly functioning mind. Two, I believe my mind is accurately perceiving my environment. Three, my mind has evolved to apprehend the truth. And four, I have a high degree of confidence that my mind can apprehend truth. And because of this, I have confidence in my philosophical thinking to produce true beliefs. And therefore, I'm warranted in believing in spirit because I've studied Hegel's philosophy and I agree with it. Now, we mentioned that Plantinga does not require that our design plan come from an intelligent designer. As I said, naturalistic evolution is capable of producing an accurately functioning mind. But, but Plantinga has an opinion on which of these two is the preferred option, which we'll now get into. In his book, Where the Conflict Really Lies, Plantinga addresses this, um, and I, I'm going to paraphrase this from the preface. While there appears to be superficial conflict between science and spirituality, there is actually deep accord. And where there appears to be superficial accord between naturalism and science, there is, in fact, deep conflict. What he means is this. 
If naturalistic evolution is true, then our cognitive abilities are not designed to know the truth. Philosophy and science are not our mission here per naturalism. Survival is, and only survival. Any cognitive abilities we have come to have are for their survival benefit only. They're not to abstractly find the truth. It does not mean that evolution cannot develop beliefs that are accurate. But the point Plantinga is making is that naturalistic evolution does not work with the goal of providing, producing accurate beliefs. Its goal is survival, no matter what beliefs one holds. It's driven by the four Fs, as they say, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproducing. Truth is not one of the four Fs. Now, compare this to Hegel's view. Our cognitive functions are certainly based on the truth because the logic underlies it. Hegel's logic comes first. It is logically prior to nature. Now, Plantinga has gone a step further and actually come up with an argument for why the underlying presence of God has a higher probability than the naturalistic materialism for producing accurate beliefs. And you can substitute, again, Hegel's spirit here for Plantinga's God. And he calls this the evolutionary argument against naturalism, E-A-A-N for short. What this is, is that he believes it is far less likely that our cognitive functions are reliable if blind naturalism is correct than if they come from God, or in Hegel's case, abstract logic. And essentially his point is that an act can have survival value, but the belief surrounding that action can be all over the place. It's like the old joke, a man is seen banging his head against a wall. Someone asks him, why are you banging your head on the wall? The man says, it keeps the tigers away. The person says, how do you know that works? The man says, have you seen any tigers around here lately? And there are plenty of examples of people attributing beliefs to actions that have no basis in reality. Now, sure, according to naturalism, over millions of years of evolution, we may get some things right, and that might be part of it. But the design plan, as we've said, is not for the truth. It's, it's for survival. And here's the key point. If our cognitive functions are built for survival, not truth, then how can we trust any theory? How can we even believe in blind materialistic naturalism or in any theory? Now, on the other hand, if spirit and logic underlie the universe, then we can trust our cognitive abilities to lead us forward. Spirit is getting to know itself through the dialectical process of history, as Hegel says. And then you, of course, get into the elements of human culture that speak to spirit but not to survival, such as great music, art, religious belief, and philosophy. Now, interestingly, Darwin himself expressed this doubt. Uh, I quote Darwin here. But then with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? End quote. Now, British writer and lay theologian C.S. Lewis expressed this um, in a similar manner. This is really, yeah, he really gets, gets it right here in my view. Quote, supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It's merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way. This gives me as a byproduct the sensation I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? 
It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism, and therefore I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God, end quote. That's a marvelous quote. Now, substitute Hegel's spirit here for God, and you get the picture, Hegel's logic. Now, again, it's not, we're not arguing against evolution here, and I've said this before in previous episodes. We take it all, believe in, in evolution. Plantinga even clearly states this, that E-A-A-N is not directed against evolution. Quote, the theory of evolution or the claim that human beings have evolved from simian ancestors or anything in that neighborhood is not directed against this, end quote. Now, the point here is that blind naturalism seems to be not enough to get us to, to be the creatures we believe we are today, thinking rational beings searching for the truth trusting in our rationality, aiming at the truth. The bottom line is either we have spirit within us, which is aimed at truth and leading us forward, or we are the result of totally blind evolution that is not aimed at truth, but only survival, or some combination. But Plantinga is saying that if we truly believe in the latter one, then that's probably not going to help us in really believing in, in, in what we think is true. If, if we believe our minds are accurate in its beliefs, then the spirit model is more probable. It's a more probable choice than the naturalistic. Now, he actually came up with some probability formulas to demonstrate this, which I won't go into here, but you can check it out. Now, let me cover some reasons that, that give support to this view. And many of these are contained in a lecture Plantinga gave entitled Two Dozen or So Theistic Arguments. And I'm going to summarize six of them here, not 12. And I'm going to do it in relation to Hegel's philosophy. The first is what's called rational and abstract propositions. Do rational propositions exist without human thinkers? What about rational propositions that have not yet been thought? Certainly they have a certain abstract being, even if not yet actualized in human thought. This corresponds to Hegel's abstract logic, which precedes human thinkers and is pure abstract thought. Without such a logic, there can be no unthought propositions, which seems to be illogical. Numbers are an example. Do numbers exist without being thought? Abstractly, yes, they do. So that's, that's the first example here that supports spirit, that supports Hegel's logic. The second is the fine-tuned universe. Now, it's just incredible the amount of things that have had to go right in order to create life. Scientists have determined that if gravity were either slightly stronger or slightly weaker, then all the stars would either be blue giants or red dwarfs, not the stars we see like our sun, which are capable of producing life on planets that circulate them. Stephen Hawking also notes, and I quote, a reduction of the rate of expansion by one part in 1,012 at the time when the temperature of the universe was 1,010 K would have resulted in the universe's starting to recollapse when its radius was only one three thousandth of the present value and the temperature was still 10,000 K. So life cannot begin at this high temperature, not even close. This is an unbelievable fine tuning of the universe. Now, is this just a coincidence? Plantinga 
has a nice analogy here. He says, if you were playing poker and every time this one person dealt, he, de- he dealt four aces to himself every time, it would cause suspicion. This person might say, well, it's just one outcome out of, out of many. It's certainly possible that I can get four aces every single time I deal. But does that really hold water after a period of time? For example, let's, let's say a, a fair coin is tossed and comes up heads 50 times in a row. Now, the next toss is still a 50-50 chance, heads or tails, if it's a fair coin. But after 50 throws, all being heads, wouldn't you be justified in suspecting that that coin is not a fair coin? You know, it's, um, it's interesting. We've discussed this in, in, the, in the past, that the cosmos, in fact, might repeat itself from Big Bang to Big Crunch to Big Bang. And the laws of nature may evolve over this cyclical process. They may evolve toward a greater probability of life. And then once life comes about, a greater probability to support life. And this may have gone on through several cycles before there were human beings. Now, this is my take. This is not Plantinga's. Uh, but I think it's a realistic notion, and I've covered this in, in tiny bits in previous episodes, and I want to get into this in more detail in a future episode. But the basic question is, why these laws? Why this incredible fine-tuning? Well, the Hegel model answers this. The naturalistic model does not. Now, the third reason, we did a full episode regarding the age-old question, why is there something rather than nothing, in episode 29. Hegel's system answers this. Naturalism does not. Fourth, there's also Occam's razor, that the simpler explanation is preferred. Hegel's system provides a logical three-part view that explains what is happening here. Naturalism does not. Naturalism cannot point out how or why life evolved in the first place, or what consciousness really is. Five, the argument from evil. We discussed this in episode nine on the problem of evil, Plantinga suggests that the recognition of evil is a sign of theism, a sign of spirit. Evil does not exist in blind nature. Hegel's notion of logic, nature, and spirit better fits with our intuitions on morals and evil. And it explains why there is evil. Hegel's philosophy is, in fact, a theodicy. It explains why there is evil in the world, because it is necessary dialectically to overcome, uh, for spirit to, to, to know itself. That's why logic othered itself into nature so it could come to know itself in actuality as spirit. Blind nature, on the other hand, contains no evil, which is a real problem uh, for naturalism. And finally, number six, the argument from love. Love is the highest of the emotions. It is what God or spirit can be said to be. Is this highest love a byproduct of survival or is something bigger going on here? I choose the latter. So in summary, Hopefully you've come away from this episode with a sense that there is warrant to believe in Hegel's system, to believe in spirit. It's not a matter of pure blind faith. In studying Hegel and going through his project, one can legitimately believe it to be true. So that's it for this episode. Please follow the Cunning of Geist Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. And please share a link to this episode to your friends that might be of interest. And as always, all references cited here will be detailed at the Cunning of Guys Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening. This is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.